Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's so good to be back. Like I said, it was great being out in Ohio, but I do miss you guys. I miss being here. I miss being a part of what's going on, and I definitely miss wrap-up Sunday. So for those of you who shared, thank you. For those of you who participated in the prayer circles, thank you. Uh, it just it sounds like it was a, a great day uh, looking back through First Samuel. We're going to be diving into Second Samuel today. Uh, as as most of you know, I think most of you have been here before. We're working our way through First and Second Samuel, and uh, we finished First Samuel up a couple weeks ago, and we then did a wrap up. Normally, at the end of a book, we do a wrap up. It's an opportunity for you guys to share what God has been teaching you. Uh, And we started this sermon series back in February, so we've been in it for a while, and it was great to hear from you guys. Now, though, we're going into 2 Samuel, which really is just a continuation of 1 Samuel. It was originally written as one book, uh, but over the last, you know, however many hundreds of years, they've split it into two, and it's fine that they did that. It's a good place to kind of you know, finish up one storyline and start another. And so we decided, hey, let's do that wrap-up Sunday last week. And two weeks ago, we saw um, the death of King Saul. And King Saul, as we were talking this week about this sermon uh, and this sermon series, um, I just realized, Gwen, I don't have my glasses. I can't read. They're in my van <laughs> in the front. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Thank you. I looked down at the computer and was like, I can't read that. There you go. Perfect. I probably don't need the notes. So, you know, other than reading the scripture, I'd, I could look up there, I guess. Um, but King Saul was kind of a bully. Uh, he bullied his way around his own kingdom. If you remember, he loved David. David, he made his right-hand man. And then when he felt threatened by David... He hurled a spear at him, right? He wanted to pin him into the wall. And, and he was, cause he was jealous and he was kind of a bully. And he thought, you know what? Instead of working this out like two adults, I'm just going to chuck the spear at him. He missed luckily. And so through some crazy way, he gets David to start trusting him again and start working for him again. And he throws the spear at him a second time because of his jealousy. King Saul was used to getting whatever he wanted. He bullied his way around. He was even a guy that hurled his spear at his son, his son, Jonathan, the good friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. My wife taking care of me as always. Um, anyways, threw the spear at Jonathan again, he missed, which kind of makes me wonder, you know, I do believe in God's providence, but was he really good with the spear? I mean, cause he's the three instances we have recorded. He didn't do very well, but anyways, King Saul was kind of a bully. He took care of whatever he wanted. I don't know about you were, I would ask for hands, but I don't really want to embarrass you, but think back to like middle school, maybe even high school. Were you ever bullied? Right. There was a kid at my school. I don't want to say his name. Uh, I went to school in Tacoma. I don't want to say his name in case things got around back to this guy. But he, he, he was, I was afraid of him. He bullied me. This was like probably fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And then luckily they moved. I mean, they didn't move like out of town, but they moved. So he went to a different school. Um, 
And I was afraid of this kid. This kid, you know, knew how to get what he wanted. Uh, there was a lot of pushing, a lot of, you know, just grabbing and taking what he wanted. And he kind of bullied people around. So I was going to, I originally thought maybe I should ask, see if anybody remembers their bully. And, but I don't want to, I don't want to drudge up that drama in your lives. But bullies are no fun. The problem with King Saul is not only was he a bully, but he was the leader. Okay, we entitled this sermon series Lessons from Leaders. And we've spent since February, these last few months, looking at lessons that we can learn from leaders, positive and negative, right? Good things they've done and bad. And there were a couple of good things that we learned from Saul. We also have had plenty of opportunities to see how Saul responded as a leader and say, we can learn from that by doing the opposite, and that'll, that'll go well for our lives, right? So there have been a lot of lessons that we've been learning from Saul. But Saul was definitely a leader that did what he wanted to make himself look good. Whatever he needed to do, he did for himself. He didn't listen to other people. He stopped listening to God and the voice of God through other people, the prophets, that sort of thing in his life. And we saw that. And so again, a lot of lessons we can apply to our life because of his negatives. But what we're going to see starting here in 2 Samuel chapter 1 is that the next star of the of this story, David, is going to go about things a little bit differently. Now, David's still going to do some things that aren't good that we're going to be able to learn from, and we'll get to those as we're going through his life. But to start with, what we're going to see is David is going to be somebody that's going to lead by building others up. And if you'll remember, that is not the way that Saul led at all. And so as we're looking today at 2 Samuel chapter 1, we are going to see leadership that builds up. And the encouragement today that I hope that you leave with is that a real leader shows his or her impact by building those around them up and preparing them to move on. So a lot of a lot of you are families with younger children. And hopefully you've had people telling you, whether it's your parents or maybe other friends whose kids are older, uh, hopefully you have those people investing in you and, and telling you that one of the main things you need to be focusing right now with your kids being younger is m- helping them move down this path of maturity so that when they leave the house, they're ready for the world, right? It's not all about keeping them from doing this or making them do that, but it's helping them understand why they don't do this or they they need to do that so that when they leave the house, you've helped them become someone who can think on their own and process and go out into the world, hopefully leading, right? And, and in some ways they will be leading, whether it's just in their family, in the workplace, in their neighborhood, with friends, that sort of thing. And so leadership that builds up is so important. And I think it really shows strength. So if you think back to that bully, that bully wanted to pound you down, steal your lunch money, take your ball to show that they were strong. And yet instead, all it shows is that they were a bully. 
But when you have a friend that helps build you up and helps you become the best you that you can be, especially if it's a godly mentor that is, is showing you through scripture why you need to do and not do the things that you need to do and not do, but also the characteristics and qualities you need to develop in your life, that's a leader I want to be around. That's a mentor I want in my life. And that's what we're going to see through David's life starting today. So we're going to start reading here in chapter one of second Samuel. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from his striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Now, David is putting his household back in order. Remember, he, he came back from battle and his, his family, all the servants, all the kids, all the women, everyone who stayed behind had been taken by the Amalekites. And so David and his 600 men were exhausted and they were tired. And they went after the Amalekites and the Lord was with the, with him, right? He sought the Lord. The Lord said, go get them. And they didn't lose a single person. They were able to get back not only all of their stuff, but all the stuff the Amalekites had with. And remember at the end of that battle, David lets 400 young men, it says on camels leave, right? But they had destroyed the rest of the Amalekites and the Malachites are never heard from again as a nation, as a nation that especially was a thorn in the side of Israel. Okay, so we know that from the future. But the Amalekites uh, were just recently here in this story, uh, a thorn in David's side, even though the Lord worked it out for good. So David's kind of putting together his household, getting his people back together, but he knows that off in the distance somewhere, the Philistines are battling with Israel, right? With Saul. Because remember, 1 Samuel ends and 2 Samuel begins. They don't have the the little gap there that we took for wrap-up weeks. This is a continuation of the story. He knows that there's fighting going on somewhere. And and there's these big clouds kind of hanging over his head because he doesn't know, should I take my men and go in battle? Uh, Originally, he thought he might have to go into battle with the Philistines, uh, with his men. Remember that at the end of of 1 Samuel, in those last couple chapters? It's just a crazy story. And, And so there's a lot of stuff going on. He doesn't know what's going on with this battle, but he knows it's happening. And this guy gets there. And look at the way the author of 2 Samuel describes him. He gets there, and he, he's not looking very good, right? He's looking, he's looking like he's a little bit rough. It says his clothes are torn, and he's got dirt on his head, right? And, 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 and he, he doesn't really look that great. And his words are kind of ominous, right? I mean, look at what he says to King David. He says, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. What has this guy got going on here? Let's look in verse three. It says, David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Like I said, then David said to him, how did it go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who, uh, then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know 
that Saul and Jonathan are dead. So this news is bad. David's, uh, of course, not close with Saul right now. He's running for his life still. He's away from Israel in a lot of ways. He's, he's on the outskirts, but he still is an Israelite to heart. And he believes God's promise that he will be king of Israel. So obviously he wants the best for the Israelite army. He also has shown nothing but wanting the best for Saul. I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. How many times has he said that? The one time that he did something just to show that he could have taken him out, cutting off his robe, right? He felt guilty about it immediately, repented of that. He told uh, Saul about it, that kind of thing. In other words, we've seen a continual pattern of David respecting Saul's position, the king of Israel, and, and saying, when the Lord wants Saul out, Saul will be gone. And then, although I've been anointed for the last 20 years, uh, I'm going to continue to wait until that happens. So David, or David has shown nothing but respect towards Saul, or the majority of the time. And then, of course, we know that David's closest friend was Saul's son, Jonathan. So this is heavy information, uh, and, and, and David like demands confirmation. He wants to know, how do you know these things? How do you know that they are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. So this Amalekite starts weaving this story. You know, some of, some of my friends are storytellers. They start talking. I know I'm going to be with them for the next 15, 20 minutes, you know, and it's going to be a great story and I'm going to hear what happened. That's kind of what this guy does. He starts weaving this story by chance. I'm on a battlefield, right? I'm in this, there's this massive battle going on and by chance I happen to be there. I mean, I wouldn't think that's a normal hangout place. And who's this Amalekite? Is he with the Philistines? Is he with the Israelites? Right? I mean, what's, what's going on here? The Amalekites have just done a terrible thing to David and his home in Ziklag, and, and they've been, in, you know, battling with the Israelites. So who is this guy? Why is he hanging out on this battlefield? And he happens to find, we see what he writes there, Saul leaning on his spear. Now, this should, again, kind of, you know, evoke some familiar memories for David, maybe not good ones, of how much Saul loves his spear. So, I mean, again, this guy sounds like, okay, he's talking about Saul's spear, and I know Saul loves his spear. He threw it at me twice, right? So, I mean, I know that, that, that this could be the case, but what's going on here, right? And, and Saul, leaning on the spear, according to this young man, asks him, hey, who's behind me? And the guy goes, hey, I'm an Amalekite. Right? And this messenger is an Amalekite who Saul had set out to destroy because God commanded him to. This is back in 1 Samuel 15, remember? And yet Saul decides instead of wiping out the Amalekites, I'm going to leave some alive. You guys remember that story? 1 Samuel 15. And all of a sudden, here he is, Saul, wounded mortally wounded in some ways, at least according to this guy's story and from what we learned in 1 Samuel 31. And there's an Amalekite who comes upon him. I mean, Saul's got to be like crazy about this, right? It, it, was, it was the Amalekites, again, like I said, who attacked or sacked Ziklag, 
kidnapped David's family. These guys had been the bane of the Israelites' existence for a while. And, And the Amalekites have done a lot of battles with Israel. So this is, it's kind of fascinating. It's fascinating the story this guy's telling, and it's fascinating that it would be an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me. This is, again, the recollection of the Amalekite of what Saul said to him. Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him and I killed him, or beside him, and I killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. So this story continues on, right? And according to this young Amalekite, Saul says, hey, I'm too wounded to live. Take my life. It's a mercy kill, right? I'm, I'm, I'm on the battlefield. I'm not going to make it. Can you take me out? And as proof that he's telling the truth, Saul offers this young man or gives this young man, or I should say this young man offers David the crown and the armlet. So off of King Saul, the, the decorative armlet and the crown. Okay, so this young man saying, hey, as proof of that this happened, this is what I got for you. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you might be saying to yourself, right, this account of Saul's death seems different than the one that we read in 1 Samuel chapter 31. And you would be correct. Okay, you're not crazy. Look back one page. You can see that for yourself. But in 1 Samuel, at the end, compared to 2 Samuel, this young man's story, there, here are some of the differences. In 1 Samuel, it says that he was downed by archers. Okay? This guy says he was downed by nearby chariots and soldiers. 1 Samuel says he ended his life by falling on his own sword. Okay, so just one page back, we see this story. Uh, and, and in this one, in this story, it says that he's leaning up against his spear. He's wounded, but he's leaning against his spear. And in 1 Samuel, it says that he, had, he killed himself. And in 2 Samuel chapter 1, it says that he didn't kill himself, but he asked this young man to do this. Now, you also remember that Saul in 1 Samuel 31 was talking about how much he was afraid of being humiliated or killed by an uncircumcised, right? We can't forget that. That's why he's trying to have his sword bearer kill him. He says, I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want to be dragged around town. I don't want to be hung up on a wall. All those things like that by uh, an uncircumcised. And here we have an Amalekite who was an uncircumcised heathen. Why would Saul ask him to put himself to death or, you know, to put him to death? So what Kevin and I were talking, and by no means do we know, we only can read what God's word says in these two chapters compared to other things. We read a bunch of different commentators this weekend, but we think that this guy, uh, in our opinion, is probably, especially with the way the writer of, of Samuel writes these two books that were one book, that he was probably an op- opportunistic liar. Okay, he was out there on the battlefield that he probably found Saul, Jonathan, uh, Saul's sword bearer, uh, the armor bearer, all of them already dead. So he was probably uh, like really probably scavenging around looking for what can I get? Okay, this guy's kind of probably out on his own. We know there aren't a lot of Amalekites left. And so he's probably not by chance on the battlefield. He's probably trying to find things. And he knows enough uh, about Israel, Saul, and David 
that he realizes, hey, if I have the crown and the armlet, I might be able to get in good with David if I bring this stuff to him. And so I'm going to weave this story to kind of make it sound like I'm the hero here. Right? I took out the guy. Right? He's not remembering that David wouldn't do this, but he's, because maybe he didn't know. But he's going to say, I maybe took out this guy. Here's the proof. Is there a financial reward or do you have a place in your new uh, regime and kingdom for me? Is this a chance, right? Because David was known all around as to be the heir to the throne. This wasn't private. This guy knew he could find David and he went and found him. And he thought that this would be the good news that David would want to hear. But... This is the beauty of David and his leadership at this moment. The response that he gives couldn't be more different than the Amalekite would have wanted or expected. It says in verse 11, Then David took a hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son. And for the people of the Lord... And for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. So David's response, not what the Amalekite expected. He mourned, he wept, he fasted, because David respected God's chosen king. David respected God's chosen king. He wasn't self-centered. He was other-centered, right? He was kingdom-centered, God's kingdom, not his own kingdom, right? He, he, was, he was a man who considered what the Lord had set in place and respected that. Now, the Amalekite, like I said, when David, or, uh, Kevin and I were talking about it this week, we really think this guy probably expected some sort of reward or position of power or something. And, and he did get something from David, but it wasn't what he was expecting. Let's continue on here on the next slide. Verse 13, it says, And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner in Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of his young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So after David's initial response of mourning over Saul and Jonathan's death, he he turns his attention to the Amalekite. He wants to be clear what this guy's story was. Who are you? Where did you come from? Did I hear you correctly? And after clarifying all that information, David, uh, he, he asked the question that he had been asking himself over these last 20 years. Right, and, and he continued to answer in the same way in his own life. How were you not afraid to take the life of the Lord's anointed? Right? David had had multiple opportunities to do it, but he knew that that was not God's plan. And since the son of a sojourner uh, who had lived among the Israelites had to have known he was the king, He has no excuse for laying his hand against the king, God's anointed. So David, after responding to the death of Jonathan and Saul emotionally, turns to the legal responsibility uh, of, of, of the Israelites 
to the murder of God's anointed. And he calls one of his men and orders him to kill this young man. And he says, the blood be on your head. We don't know if David believed this young man's story and saw the holes in it uh, and didn't believe it. We, we aren't sure. But either way, he followed the law. And someone had taken the life of the king. And by doing so, he erases any doubt as to whether he was power hungry uh, and, and thrilled by the death of Saul. We see that he still, to the very end, respected God's anointed. He begins his kingship well by avenging God's anointed who was killed by this Amalekite. Verse 17, it says that David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to all the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, what we're going to see here in these next few verses is a poem that David wrote and, and wanted everyone to memorize and know. So I'm going to read this to you. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Geboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain in your high places, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. We see here at the end of this chapter a lament. Uh, it was likely entitled, How the Mighty Have Fallen. And it really highlights David. And the man that he is. And I think that there's four key ideas that I see in here that we can apply to our lives. So if you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down. If not, just kind of process them as we, as we talk through them here at the end of the service. The first thing I see is that David continues to hold high esteem for God's anointed. That never varied in his life. Like I said, he, other than the time he cut off the corner of the robe to say, hey, I was close, but I didn't do it. And, and again, I think that was a sin for a different reason. He has always esteemed God's anointed. And I think David understood he was also God's anointed, but it wasn't his time yet. So we see from David as a leader that he continues to hold high esteem for God's anointed. And even though Saul had spent the better part of the last decade hunting him, he continued to hold the office in high esteem. 
Now, at risk of getting too political, I'm going to talk about myself here today. I'm not talking about any of you. But how often do I find myself ready and willing to engage in conversation or thoughts about politicians or leaders that I don't like, that I don't agree with, that may even appear sinful in the actions that they take? My words should be justified. My thoughts should be justified. And yet what we continue to see, not only in David's life with Saul, but also throughout scripture, that God is in control. And I hope you believe that. And if you do, that means he's in control of the political leadership in this country. So whether you lean left or whether you lean right, we have to trust God, his timing, his providence. And what we learn here is that God's anointed or the leadership that's in charge, whether we agree with it or not, the office needs to be respected. Saul hunted him down for the better part of the part of the last decade. And yet David never changed his mind. No politician, whether on the left or the right, has ever tried to hunt me down to kill me, right? The second thing I see here is David esteems and honors the leadership of his predecessor. He chooses to focus on the positives. This lament, read through this later today, read through this sometime next week, and think about the entire book of 1 Samuel and the kind of leader that Saul had been the majority of the time. And yet he focuses in on the positives. You and I need to do that too. We need to focus in on positive leadership aspects of anyone who God has placed in leadership roles. I know that I'd be a better person if I did that more often. The third thing I see here is David holds high his friendship with Jonathan. We see that throughout the story in 1 Samuel, but we also see it here in this poem. You and I today... Would, be, would benefit if we become people who value biblical friendship more? Do we seek out those in our lives who love the Lord, who we can learn from, who can we be mentored by? Do we value that? Do we go after it? Do we see what it is, the value that it has, and do our best to hold on to it and even to add to that friendship? We need to become people who mourn with those who mourn and and rejoice with those who rejoice. That's a prayer for me. That's a prayer for my family. It's a prayer for you guys. This week it has been, and we'll continue on uh, over the next few weeks and months as we go through the rest of this book, that we will become people who rejoice with those who rejoice, who mourn with those who mourn, and who look like Jesus Christ in flesh. That's what I want to be. And I hope that's what you want to be. The final thing I, I, I thought I saw here really in this, in this poem and in this story was that David mourns for Israel and God's reputation. Are we people who are even thinking about God's reputation and what we do and what we say? Are we the kind of church That when we do things well, we give honor and glory to God. And if we fail, if we miss the mark, are we concerned that we are failing the name of God? 
Are we concerned about God's reputation? Are we a people who are going to do our best to bring honor and glory to God's name?